This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast, Accelerating Your Career, where every other week we have on this podcast somebody who can help you become more successful in your life and in your career by using principles that I talk about in the book, Seven Rules of Power, and I teach in my class. And today, I am more than thrilled to welcome Jason Calacanis. I have been on Jason's podcast, This Week in Startups, four times, which is not much mm. in the total number of podcasts, but it's a, but it's well, a lot for, it's a lot time, for authors. Fifth time, you get a jacket, so you got okay, to get you go. to five, Perfect. you get the blazer, yeah. There you go. And um, I wrote a case on Jason. I uh, met Jason uh, when I first came on his podcast after the Power Book came out. Jason Calacanis has built an amazing angel investing ecosystem. He's written a book called Angel, which talks about how he turned $100,000 into $100 million. He is just an amazingly effective human being, and I want to welcome him to the Pfeffer on Power podcast, where we're going to talk about three things. Thank you for being with me, Jason. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, thank you for making me uh, so famous with my Stanford case study. What an honor. <laughs> There you go. So first of all, unlike many of the people on this podcast, Jason has not gone to Stanford Business <laughs> School. He doesn't have an MBA. So tell us a little bit about your background growing up, kind of a middle-class background in Brooklyn. And yeah. tell us about your story. Sure. Uh, well, and just a little point of correction. I, I have been to Stanford like six times so far, four of them to come to your class okay. <laughs> and talk to students. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, my dad was a bartender, mom a nurse, and uh, went to public school until the age of eighth grade. Got in too many fights. Went to private boys Catholic school. Didn't have the money to pay for college, so spent five years going to Fordham University at night. Well, I fixed laser printers that would get jammed in Manhattan from 1988 to, you know, 1993. Um, and during that time, you know, I just was exposed to the internet. I had been a PC user since the age of, you know, 10 years old in 1980, 1981, 82, 83. The PC became popular. I got the PC Junior right before, the IBM PC Jr. right before I went to college. I'm sorry, high school. And I had just um, been a child of that PC revolution. And so when I found out, hey, you could get paid $350, $450, $550, you know, this is when minimum wage was $250 an hour uh, doing computers, I said, wow, this is uh, could be a very powerful career. You could make two times, three times minimum wage. And uh, that's how I paid for college. And, you know, through a series of events, became more and more confident and ambitious and uh, – Went on to start some magazines because I thought that would be where the locus of power manifested itself in New York. And uh, then eventually started companies, sold companies, became a millionaire, started angel investing, made more money, and uh, started doing podcasting. And here I am at the age of 51. Um, can't believe what's happened in my career and can't believe hopefully I've got 20 good years left to see where I can take it. You have probably thirty good years left, or maybe even forty. Um, one of the one of the reasons Let's why I, yeah one of the reasons why I wanted you on this show is that your story about getting into Fordham and your story about getting the job in the computer lab in the business school I think really illustrates one of the things that I admire about your career, which is your willingness to bake the rules. So when you were trying to get into Fordham, you would drop into the admissions officer's yeah. office without an appointment uh, when you wanted to get the job 
in the computer lab. You would drop in, uh, you dropped into the dean's office without an appointment. Talk about rule breaking and going to the top. Yeah, I mean, these are two critically important things you have to do if you're going to be successful. There is a rule set that exists in the world, and most people follow that rule set. And then there's a small group of people who look at the rules and say, okay, I, I get those are the rules. I'm going to chart a different path here because what I'm doing is important. And the people who are responsible for maintaining those rules, I understand why they put them there. But in my determination, this situation requires a bending, breaking, or modifying those rules. And so I had not gotten into Fordham. I was going to go to Brooklyn College, and I had somebody who was uh, one of my Taekwondo instructors when I was younger who really had a positive influence on me, said, you know, frequency is super important. And if you, people get to know you, they're going to want to root for you. So go up to this person's office and just drop by unannounced and just say hi to them at Fordham. Now this is, I'm in Brooklyn, the Bronx. It's, it's an hour and a half, two hours on the subway. So what I would do is I had a couple of friends who were going to Fordham and I would say, hey, what are you doing? And say, oh, we got the Taekwondo club meeting tonight. We're going to go to dinner after. I said, great, I'll come up for karate. And I would bring my recent quarterly report card from senior year, which doesn't count. And I would ask somebody to write me a letter of recommendation. And I would knock on the door and Mr. Edward Bolin would say, oh, Jason, are you on my calendar? The second or third time I go there, I say, no, I'm going to karate. I got this letter of recommendation. He goes, yeah, no, no, um, sit down for a second. Let's talk. You came all the way from Brooklyn? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm coming up. You know, I got a lot of friends up here. I'm really trying to go to the school. He said, yeah, no, I know. You told me like 17 times. Uh, and this frequency and this genuine enthusiasm I had for wanting to go to Fordham, I think got inside his head a bit to the point at which after I had done this three or four times, it became kind of like a joke. He's like, okay, how'd you do? Third quarter, all A's, great. How many letters of recommendation have? Okay, two, great. I'll put them in my file, your file. And right before the semester was to start, he called me because he felt such an obligation to me as a, me being such a pain in the ass, I think. And he said, listen, I'm going to Yale. It's my dream job to be admissions at Yale because I think it was his alma mater. Um, and he said, um, so I'm leaving Fordham. And I was like, I just was crestfallen because I put all this effort into <laughs> making this relationship. And he said, but I wanted to have the most non-traditional student get accepted this year to Fordham. And I said, who did you pick? And he said, you. And I was just in shock. This is on the phone in August. You know, I'm in Brooklyn sweating in my, in my you know, in my parents' house. Uh, no air conditioning. It's the middle of August. And I said, well, isn't the semester starting? He said, yeah, it starts in 10 days. Do you want to go to Rose Hill or Lincoln Center? And I said, what's the difference? There's no housing in Rose Hill. So it's a two-hour commute each way. Or Lincoln Center is a one-hour commute each way. I said, I'll take the one-hour commute. He said, okay, go to the Bursa. You're all set. And uh, good luck in your life. And I've never talked to Ed Bolin before, but I'm, I'm, somebody sent me after your case study and people hearing the story, somebody sent me his LinkedIn profile, and I'm trying to reach him. Uh, so if anybody knows him, I tell him to listen to this. But it was, a, you know, really broke something out in my head, which was like, you could wait in line or you could find another route in. And this happened to me in Brooklyn many times. Uh, there would be a line to go to see a movie. And then because we had no money, what we do is five or six kids would pool their money buy one ticket, that kid would go open the back door and we'd all run in the back door to go see a Star Wars movie. Now, I don't recommend that because that's stealing. But that's another example. And I, I keep recognizing that this whole structure that exists in society was created to just keep people in line and to, you know, keep the trains running on time and, you know, things flowing nicely. But there's always room for an exception. And so be exceptional and people will make an exception for you. 
Thank you. That's a, wonderful. And the other thing I was going to ask you about, I mean, one of the geniuses of Jason was he actually would walk by these newsstands and ask the question, how do you get to be on the cover of those magazines? In those days, there were magazines. Yes. And then he asked the question, who decides who gets on the cover of those magazines? Yes. And, so the, and so the genius of beginning his career in putting out these publications was that when you put out a publication, you get to ask people questions. And when yes. you ask people questions, if you're smart, and Jason is very smart, you will learn a lot. Yes. You can ask anybody anything about anything. They will answer. So that, I think, is one aspect of your career. The other interesting aspect of your career is how you distributed these publications. You kind of yeah. talk about that. Well, it was pretty funny. So I started this 16-page photocopy newsletter because I had realized, listen, you know, whoever gets to pick who's on the cover and do a story about somebody is critically important because at that time, the way people found out about things in the world was through newspapers, magazines, and television. And magazines were considered the height of, you know, high society and influence at the time. And New York was the center of this. It was a magazine called Spy, Esquire. Of course, you had Vanity Fair, The New Yorker and whatnot, you know, the, the ones that were originally there. And then there were avant-garde ones like paper magazines starting. But there's also a zine movement where people would just publish some stuff and staple it together and then sell it at a newsstand. And so I said, I'll go that route. And I figured out how to make a 16-page photocopy newsletter called The Silicon Alley Reporter. And when I did that, you know, I printed up 2,000 copies of it. And I was trying to figure out how to get it to people. So I went to a party that night and I brought a luggage cart. Um, so as I was on 43rd Street at the Village Printers, which I think is still there. And there was like a store there where they were selling luggage and they had a luggage cart. And the guy and I had all these magazines I was trying to, you know, photocopies in bundles. And so I just put them onto this, you know, luggage rack. And the guy sold me a bunch of cards. It was 20 bucks. And I just walked to a party at Roseland. That was an inter happened to be an internet CD-ROM party. And I started handing them out to people. And then all of a sudden I looked up and the entire party had stopped. And there were 500 people at this party. And every single one of them had a copy of the magazine in their hands or was looking over somebody's shoulders, looking for themselves in the magazine and looking at their friends in the magazine. And it was, I'm just remembering this moment, actually, now that we're having a conversation, I haven't thought about it for years. And I just looked and I was like, power. I just stopped the entire party with a photocopy because they're looking for themselves in the digital dim sum section. And I called it digital dim sum in the back. And I would put four pages, a four page spread of the 16 pages. It was 25%, just pictures of people that I had taken at parties. And people were looking for themselves and had their name and their company name and who they were talking to. And then I was like, there's an opportunity not just to have one cover. There's an opportunity to have 50 covers. If you're a nobody and I put you in the back of the magazine, you were in a magazine, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna buy 10 copies and show it to your friends. And it all just clicked. And that magazine became a 100-person company, 300-page color glossy, doing $11 million a year. And uh, it was quite a run. And I had a New Yorker profile done on me. I was on Charlie Rose. I was the cover on the business section of the New York Times. Because knowing about the internet six months or a year before most people is the equivalent of like knowing the end of history. Like, at that moment in time, the internet was so important that you knew things that other people didn't. You were an oracle. And if you knew the people and you were picking the winners, you were like, uh, the, literally the story that was written about me was called The Connector. 
And that was the story that Larissa McFark had written about me. And when I went to lunch with her, she had brought in her friend, this new reporter at The New Yorker named Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who hadn't written any books, but he sat with me and he said, oh, you know, Jason, you you know about the Dunbar number? You're you're like a super router of people. And there's a study on Dunbar. And anyway, you, you're a connector in social science. I mean, this is in 1998, we're having this conversation. And the name of the piece in The New Yorker was The Connector. And it talked about how I was going to go on and have this career and be a media mogul. And it was, I'm not a media mogul exactly, but a you know, mini mogul in some ways, in terms of writing checks to investing companies. And, um, you know, I ran that up as, as fast as I could. And it was really about relationships. I, every morning, I'd have breakfast with somebody at Michael's. Every lunch, I'd have a lunch with somebody at Nobu, like <laughs> a couple of days a week. And then I would meet with my team before and after. So there were 10 meetings a week, plus every night I was out in the town. And so my schedule, my assistants, the editors would say, you're having breakfast with this person, you're having lunch with this person, Gramercy Tavern or Nobu, Gramercy Tavern or Nobu, what do you want to eat today? And I just networked like a madman because I said, you know what? Everybody wants to meet me. So I just told them, you want to do breakfast, you want to do lunch, or you want to do the Knicks game. You can take me to a Knicks game. You just have to have good seats. We can go to Nobu or Gramercy Tavern. You're buying. Uh, or we can go to Michael's. I'll buy breakfast. It's hilarious uh, when I look back on it. I was a bit of a maniac. <laughs> yeah, and the, but the other part of this that I love is the story about you starting. So not only did you start the magazine, but then you started the list, the Silicon Alley. 100. Not Silicon Valley, the Silicon Alley 100. Yes. And your genius for creating controversy. Yes. So first of all, your staff didn't want you to create a list because you'd piss people off. Yep. And secondly, they wanted DoubleClick to be at the top of the list, and you intentionally chose somebody or something else because you understood the power of lists. Yes, the consensus was DoubleClick was the most important company on the East Coast and the internet. And DoubleClick is still considered the most important acquisition ever made in the history of technology companies because DoubleClick is you know, a large portion of Google's revenue to this day. They created the ad networks on the internet for display advertising. And uh, it was pretty clear they were far and away the number one company. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make Esther Dyson number one because she was here before them. She set up all this whole industry. And I'll explain it as such that – there wouldn't be a double click if Esther Dyson hadn't done release 1.0 in New York and hadn't done all this angel investing. It makes perfect sense to me, and it will be a huge controversy. So it's sort of like picking, you know, Kobe over LeBron or Michael Jordan over LeBron or LeBron over Michael Jordan. It just leads to hours and hours of speculation. My team didn't also didn't want me to rank the list, and they came to me as a group and said, "Listen, we don't want to rank the list. It's too de divisive." Um, we're getting all kinds of people angry at us. People want to know the number and uh, tell them that you, you, your only job is to say whether the person's in the top third, the middle third, or the lower third, and that Jason does the ranking after that. And then people were lobbying my people to, hey, can you get me up from the bucket? I know I'm in number three. Can you get me to number two at least? Or they're in number two. Hey, is there any, can I make an argument for being number one? And uh, yeah, I just tweaked it and my team didn't even know until the last minute. So I just told everybody, make one pagers. And then I sat with the designer and I just said, one, two, three, four, no, one, two, three, five, four. So, and I just laid it out and people kind of found out. The only people who really knew in the company were like the last editor, the producer, the designer, because they had to put the numbers on each profile page. And then uh, the printer and me. 
But it leaked. Yeah. It always leaked. And, and, and by the way, as objectively as you did it, that's how the fortune, by the way, does the most powerful women list. I mean, it's, it's just as much science. But the point of ranking and the point of Jason creating this list and then everybody begging him to be higher ranked on the list, I love it. Hilarious. The kid from Brooklyn. Um, it just shows you human nature. Humans want to be recognized. And if you are the person who can give that recognition... Well, you know, that's a big deal. Look at our relationship. You know, you told me you wanted to write a case study. I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, I can't get into Stanford. And you want to write a case study on me? And then I got one of the Ivy League schools contacted me in the last year and was like, hey, we're thinking about a professor uh, for startups and capital allocation. Would you consider that? I know you're busy. And I was like, wow, this is actually really happening. The schools I could never get into are writing case studies and want me to teach a course and be an adjunct. Like, that's pretty heady stuff, is it not? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you deserve it because you've been extraordinarily successful and extraordinarily smart about your success and extraordinarily smart about creating controversy. Uh, Jason, you remember you stood up for Travis Kalanick of Uber at the time when there was all kinds of controversy. You know, I think he had referred to Uber as Boober uh, because it helped him get women. And there was all kinds of issues of abuse and legal liability and all kinds of things. And at a time when nobody stood behind him, yeah. you did. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, getting beat up pretty badly, and I went on CNBC pretty famously. I said, hey, you're the third investor in the company, fourth investor in the company. How do you stand by this person? And they just read me the whole list. And I said, you know, people like to think that these great entrepreneurs, uh, you know, are born that way, but they're actually made. And I said, and this is the moment that makes the great entrepreneurs. So what you're actually witnessing here are some actual mistakes, um, some of them overblown, some of them maybe underreported on. I'm sure there's a thousand more of them. Uh, but this will be one of the great entrepreneurs of our lifetimes. And uh, they will get through this. And Travis will be legendary for the rest of his life, not only for this company, but whatever companies he does after that. And man, I, I got a little bit of heck for it. Uh, and then I got a lot of praise. And then people said, wow, you stand by your guy. And I said, well, how do I not stand by him? I made the bet. It worked out really well for me. And, uh, you know, if he made a couple of mistakes or other people on the team made the mistakes, let's give him the chance to grow from it. So it's a crucible moment. And uh, let's see what happens uh, when he gets through it. You know, everybody's got to face some darkness and some challenge in their life. This is like some Joseph Campbell shit. Like, let's see if the hero emerges from the other side. I can tell you, I know this hero. Going to defeat the emperor and he's going to redeem Darth Vader. And, you know, this is a Jedi, uh, like unprecedented power and... Uh, character. And the other thing you've done, which I encourage people to do, which they don't, is you do events. Sure. You do a launch, you do Angel University, you do Startup University. And one of the things that one of the people who I talked to about your case said, you always do events of very high quality. So the, the event infrastructure, and where one event feeds into the other, I think has been really important in building this amazing ecosystem. It wasn't always like that. I was on a nickel early on. So my trick early on was I would rent uh, I would just get a table for like 10 or 12 people at a Mexican joint or a pizzeria, like a, you know, nice Italian pizzeria joint. Cheap. Cheap. And what I would do is I'd say, listen, I got a bunch of guys coming. They're really busy, uh, gals. Uh, just put some sangria on the table. Give me the two pitchers of sangria, pitcher of margaritas, put out the quesadillas, put out the tacos, put out the frajitas. But I want the food and the drinks on the table as people sit and uh, just come to me. I'll order more. And don't put menus down. And man, that saved me a bundle. Because if people had ordered, you know, their own drinks, 
I had ordered three things. I would never be able to afford it. And then as time went on, I got sponsors. And I said, listen, I'm having, I used to have this thing at Fred's, which was a private restaurant. It was a nice restaurant at the top of, the, of Barney's. And I happened to be friends with Mark Straussman, who was the chef and who ran it. I said, Mark, what's the night that's the slowest night? He said, well, Mondays, that's, we're closed, and Tuesdays. <laughs> and I said, um, can I come Mondays nights? Could you do it for 100 bucks a head? He's like, you've realized like, this is like a 200 a head person. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm trying to build my base here. I'm trying to get some things going, but I'm going to bring all these venture capitalists who, you know, they might rent the place when they see you got this beautiful restaurant here. And he was trying to get people to the place. So he said, okay, fine. Sure. Whatever you want, Jake Allen. I'd been friends with him. And so I just invite 12 venture capitalists. He did it for me, 1200 bucks plus tax and tip. I get out of 1500. And then I went to my law firm and I said, you know how I introduced you to a bunch of people? Um, I want you to host this dinner with venture capital. Should meet a couple more VCs. And they're like, you're kidding. And they're like, how much is it? And I was like, well, it's $1,500. So I said, $3,000. They're like, great. So I made money on it. <laughs> I love it. And so this was like, uh, was it Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn who got people to paint the fence and gave them the apples? Tom Sawyer. It was Tom Sawyer, right? Because I had always remembered that story. And I said, I'm going to Tom Sawyer this one. I said, you know, this is a great party here. You should just pay for it. And they, you know what? To their credit, you know, I, I told the folks I'm going to make a little profit on it, and it became quite a ticket because there were only 12 seats. But I wouldn't let people introduce themselves. This is another little power tip. I wanted people to know that I had a relationship with everybody in that room, even if I didn't. I wanted to introduce them. So I'd say, oh, you know, clink my glass. Hey, everybody. Uh, oh, okay, I'd stand up. Hey, everybody, I just wanted to thank you for coming. My good friend, Mark Straussman. Best chef in New York. Mark, can you come out and say hi to everybody? Tell them what they're eating. Mark, we come out. Oh, thank you so much, chef. Incredible appetizers. Let me go around the table. Uh, this is Fred Wilson. Fred is, of course, from Flatiron Partners. They invested in these two companies. They were in the magazine, and actually they were on the cover of the magazine for episode seven. One of the great venture capitalists here in New York. Okay, next up is this entrepreneur. Let me explain to you what they've done. And uh, we had a great time in the Hamptons last weekend. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me out. And this was like a – I'm just remembering this now when I talk to you. And this is one of these techniques I realized. It was taking too long for people to introduce themselves, and they made it into an ad. So I started introducing people just to make it go quicker. But then I realized, oh, somebody came up to me like, you know everybody. But three of the four of the people I was meeting for the first time. And I just said, oh, this person from Acme Ventures did the, one of the great investments of all time in Delta Corporation. Oh, this person from Sunshine Ventures. Oh, my God. They, they invested in Rose Computing. Mm. What a, what a great bet. You know, I, I, the first time I met the person. Uh, but, you know, that sort of started me off on my way to, again, you know, the person throwing the party gets a disproportionate cred, amount of credit for everything that happens after that. So all these people wind up, you know, I have people who've come to my parties and told me they met their wife, they had three kids, and they send me pictures. Ah, oh, you know, I met my wife at this thing you did, or I met my co-founder, and they credit me with having some big part in their, you know, so life. Bad. So much so that somebody said, would you officiate our wedding? I, I couldn't do it, but, you know, I was like, well, that's incredible. Like, you want me to officiate your wedding? Okay. I don't know how that works. I'm not a priest or a rabbi, but okay. So anyway, you know, these, these little things you do add up. I think people thought I was, the, you know, there's a downside to this too. People thought I was an over-promoter. People thought I was crass. People thought I was narcissistic or had a big ego. And I didn't give a fuck. But I didn't care what other people thought about me because I came from Brooklyn where the second you showed any weakness or that you cared about somebody insulting you, you know, like the other hyenas would pounce. So somebody said something to you like, oh, you got a big forehead, you ugly bastard, your mom's this, whatever. You know, and I would just say to them, oh, well, you guys haven't seen your mom? And we just, insults would fly. I'm talking about when I'm 12, 15 years old. And the second somebody cried, 
that all 20 people went to just attack that person relentlessly. And then they would call them a crybaby and whatever they made them cry. You know, this was Lord of the Flies I grew up with. So nobody's opinion ever mattered to me, which is fantastic for, you know, wanting to accumulate power and do these things because people made fun of me. You, had, you don't know what you're doing with publishing. You don't even have an editor. You have no pedigree. There's spelling errors. This is, you know, you don't even know what a factor. And they would say all this stuff to me. And I would say, oh, what have you done? Because I had a thousand people at my event last week and they paid a thousand dollars each to come and it was sold out and I made a million dollars. What did you do last week? Nothing. Right. So don't tell me anything. You're just a hater. You know? And then I would just call them, I'd say, I, we came up with a name. I just called them Jaders, Jason Haters. I said, you're just a Jader. In truth, the criticism was true. So whatever they said to me, I listened intently. The spelling errors. I need a, what's it called? A copy editor? Then I just go back. Does anybody know what a copy editor is? They're like, yeah, copy editor. That's what Susan's doing. I'm like, is Susan a copy editor? She's the managing, you know, editor. He's like, yeah, she's managing editor. She's doing the copy editing. I said, we need to have a copy editor. There were like three spelling errors. They're like, yeah, we told you this three months ago. You said you didn't have the money. I was like, okay, well, I was wrong. Get a copy editor in here. And so you just listen to all that criticism. You write it down, but you don't let it affect you. It's like somebody telling Steph Curry, like, hey, you know, when you took that shot, uh, you didn't plant your left leg. It's like, it's the greatest shooter of all time. You don't think he, A, knows that he made a mistake. B, of course he's going to take that note. Yeah, I know. Duh. And so if you want to be a great shooter, you watch tape of yourself. You watch your mistakes. But you have to have a thick skin. And you know, when I meet the kids in your class, God bless them, they're so scared of criticism. They're so scared of falling. They're so scared of tripping in front of those other people. I watch them in the class, how nervous they are asking a question. That they're, What are their peers going to think of their question? You can feel their anxiety. It's like dripping off of them. And I'm like, you're at Stanford, GSB. You're paying 75000 whatever you're paying for this thing. You were picked out of 1,000 people who want this seat, and you're nervous? You're going to rule the world with this degree. And you watch them. They're intimidated to ask a question. Or they're scared of my reaction or yours. And you're like, oh, I get it. They've been winning so much that they're afraid to lose. Their whole career up into GSB has been winning. My career was being ignored and being a nobody. So the second I saw the people at the party looking at that magazine, it didn't matter if it was spelling errors or if it was printed on a photocopy machine. I captured 500 people's attention at a party. I stopped the party with my product. What's next? Let's go. Can we make it 32 pages? Can we make it color? Can we make it glossy? And then I would just sit there with everything we did. I said... I want to show every single time we do this magazine or a party something that's 25% better. I want to show demonstrable growth. And we had a credo, demonstrable growth. Whatever we did had to be a little better than the last time. So the print people were like, the magazine's getting really thick. I said, yeah, what about this? And I threw a Japanese magazine on the table that I had gone to because I would go to the magazine stores constantly and the obscure ones. I said, how is this magazine got this paper stock? And they said, that's not a magazine, J. Cal. That's a MOOC. Like one of my smart people. I said, what do you mean MOOC? You know what they call you a MOOC in Brooklyn? That means you're an idiot. He said, it's a magazine book. It's something that only exists in Japan. I said, but look at the stock. They said, yeah, that's 100-pound stock and 80 pounds on the inside. The paper has a certain weight to it. I said, great. Next issue, I want this. They said, it's going to cost $20,000. I said, get Absolute or Mercedes on the phone. Tell them we're doing the best paper stock for the year-end episode and that they're paying for it. And that is going to be like the keepsake. 
they were like, yeah, let's go. I said, great. Tell them it's going to be a fold-out cover. And we're going to fold. That's like, that's like another six grand. I said, we're not paying for it. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> Make it exciting. And let's do some demonstrable growth. People went nuts when they got it. I got a thousand people. Jason, I got the telephone book at my house. I thought it was the telephone book. And it was Silicon Valley Reporter. This thing is so heavy. There's so many ads in it. I said, yeah, you know, this is our year end. It was a big year for 2000. We wanted to have it be special. And uh, it's like little things like that, you know, that you can do that people notice. And that was, you know, going to Fred's, the place at the top of Barney's that was closed and opening for us. And there was no menu, but the chef who owned it was there. And I knew him and he was my guy. And he was going to come out and talk to everybody, bringing the chef out and giving him a hug, my professional guy. And then he would, Mark would always say something nice about me. And I would always give a huge tip to everybody. I would bring, that was the other thing I learned is like you hand people $100 bills or $50 bills or even $2 bills, they feel special. So I used to keep $2 bills in my backpack. I would always give busboys, whatever, a couple of $2 bills. They always remember as $2 bill guy. But I would always give the waiters a crisp $100 bill or I'd have my guys give me like stacks of $100 bills. And I would just go thank every single person at every event I did at the beginning of the event. I would walk in. I'd say, thanks for working on the event. And I'd give them each a crisp $100 bill. I'd say, get me $5,000 when I would throw an event. You know, this is a million-dollar event with probably a $500,000 budget. I'd say, give me 1%. Give me five grand in cash. I'd take those $100 bills, and I would just give it to each security guy, each AV guy. I said, I really appreciate you coming. We're going to have a great show. I just wanted to buy you lunch. Boom. This is New York. You know, some people are like, we don't get tips. And I was, you know, we're union, whatever. I said, you know what? It's just for lunch, whatever miscellaneous expenses you happen to run into. Don't worry about it. I'm from Brooklyn. We tip everybody. I walk away. Uh, so that was another little secret. I had all little secrets like that. And then anytime I had a problem, there was no problem. But everybody else, was cheap bastards, would never tip. And certainly nobody had the presence of mind to tip on the way in. You know, that's like a superpower move. Uh, but I learned all this stuff growing up in Brooklyn. I watched the wise guys. You know, they would walk into a place. They'd just boom, boom, boom. They'd hit the busboy. They'd hit the maitre d'. they hit the waiter. they hit the bartender. Boom. The manager. On the way in, they were treated like a king. Jason, amazing. So there are three lessons. Number one, if you pay attention to Jason, you don't care. You listen to what other people say about you, but you don't take it in, you don't care. And Jason really exemplifies this. I still remember taking a walk with somebody who was on his podcast. He was complaining about Jason. I said, do you think Jason cares? The answer, of course, is no. Number two, do events, create resources. Jason has been amazing at creating resources basically out of nothing. And third, of course, Break the rules. Jason, thank you so much for spending the time to be with me. You exceeded my wildest expectations. You're fantastic. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, it's been great to get to know you over the years, and you've really got me thinking uh, about it and really uh, trying to think of the blueprint and how I figured some of this stuff out and then all the tips I get from you. Uh, your observations are so powerful. So congratulations on the new podcast. I'll be listening. Thank you. This has been uh, the Pfeffer on Power podcast, Accelerating Your Career. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. If you want more information, go to LinkedIn or Twitter and look at me up. I have a personal website, jeffreypfeffer.com. The last name is spelled P-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. And uh, for those of you who aren't in Stanford, aren't in my class, want these tips, buy Seven mm. Rules of Power. Great book. It's, uh, it's, got, all of the, it's got all of these stories great and Jason book. thinks it's a great book. Jason, mm. thank you for being on. My pleasure, my pleasure.